Morning, church. Always feel like a rock and roll preacher when you, you come on swinging the pulpit. You, know, you twirl it round, as I say, I've got three points that I want to... Thank you, Peter and the worship team, for a wonderful time of worship. Um, we are continuing in the series in uh, 1 Corinthians, as English people say, 1 Corinthians as Americans prefer to say. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to read the first six verses. Actually, the first seven verses. 1 Corinthians 6. The background to this, just before I read it, is that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a very busy, bustling, important city. Paul had founded the church in Corinth, and he had spent a year and a half establishing it. And then he'd moved on to plant new churches. So probably a couple of years after he'd established a church in Corinth, he was in Ephesus and he receives word that there are problems in the church in Corinth and that there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And so he writes this letter from Ephesus to the church to address some of the issues and problems that the church was having. So 1 Corinthians 6, if any of you, this is Paul writing to Christians, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of believers unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. Shall we pray? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask, Lord, that as we consider it this morning, your Holy Spirit will be present amongst us to open our minds that we might understand your word. Lord, that each one of us can draw closer to you this morning through your word. So, briefly, three things from arising from looking at this. The first is that this issue that Paul is dealing with, and as I said, he had to deal with a number of issues that were going on in the church, but this particular one is that they were the Christians, the members of this church in Corinth, were falling out with each other, they had disputes with each other, and they clearly were not able to resolve those disputes, or they were not interested in resolving these disputes, and so they were actually going to court, and they were getting into lawsuits, and they were having their disputes dealt with in a civil court that had nothing to do with the church. And it's clear from what Paul says that this wasn't one case, This was happening a number of times. And so Paul writes, and he addresses this. 
And he says in very strong words there, in verse, verse 5, he said, I'm saying this to shame you. In other words, you should be ashamed of your conduct. He said, you're cheating, you're doing wrong, and you're suing each other. And you're doing all of this in front of unbelievers. So what you're doing is providing a terrible example to unbelievers of what it means to go to church and be a Christian. And so Paul writes to address this wrong and he corrects them. The second thing I want us to see here is that Paul is angry about this. You can feel Paul's anger <clears throat> coming out of these words 2,000 years later. I say this to shame you. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? He said, you yourselves cheat, you do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So this is not something that Paul is thinking of as a minor issue. He's angry about this. It offends him. It's something that needs to be put right. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why is Paul angry about this? And the reason is that what these people are doing in acting this way is they're forgetting the second greatest commandment that we, we've been given and they're forgetting what I've called the forgotten commandment. You see, Paul reminds the church in Galatia of the same thing in Galatians 5 verse 14. He writes to that church, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Just think about that for a second. All of the law that you as believers need to worry about, Paul is saying, all of it is summed up in a single suggestion. No, command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say to the, to the church in Galatia, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So Paul says that that is, that this, this kind of behavior of biting and devouring and fighting with, with each other is going against a commandment upon which everything else hangs, which is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, treat other people in a way that you would want to be treated. Now Jesus himself in Matthew 22 uh, said that this was the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22 and verse 37. Jesus has been preaching and has been teaching and a sneaky lawyer approaches him. I hear you say, how can a lawyer possibly be sneaky? I agree, that's, you know. But this particular lawyer was sneaky and he wants to catch Jesus out. And it says in verse 34... Hearing that Jesus had already silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, if the lawyer had not been sneaky and had left it there, 
we'd have had a little bit of ambiguity to play with this morning when we're working out who our neighbor is. If the conversation had not continued, you know, we could say, well, you know, I wasn't nice to that person. It's not really my neighbor. You know, I don't live next door to them. I don't see them every day. I don't see them once a week. I just bumped into him once. So you can't really say, I need to love him or her because they're not my neighbor. We could have had that maneuverability that every good lawyer feels he needs. But this particular lawyer kind of outclevered himself because he said, well, who's, who's, your, who's my neighbor? If I'm going to understand this, you know, who's my neighbor? Thinking probably that Jesus wouldn't be able to define what your neighbor was. But Jesus responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the tale, the story of the Good Samaritan, about the man who went down to Jericho, who was attacked by thieves, they beat him, stole, left him lying injured at the side of the road, you know, and the Jewish priest came and walked past, ignored him, and, and another Jewish person came and walked, ignored him. But it was the Samaritan who hate the Jews, and who were hated by the Jews, a Samaritan comes along, sees this man broken and bleeding at the side of the road, picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pays the innkeeper to look after the injured man. And after he told the parable, Jesus said, so who's the neighbor? And the lawyer had to say, well, it was the Samaritan. That means, therefore, that a Samaritan not a Samaritan. That means, therefore, that a neighbor, if we're going to go out from now and love our neighbor in the way that we love ourselves, that means our neighbor is everybody we meet. That's who we need to love. Now, I called this in my title the forgotten commandment because I think we tend to forget that we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. I spoke on this at a church in England a month ago, and the second I got up and started to speak, I noticed there was a man in the front row like this. I mean, literally like that. And I'd like to say that as a preacher, you don't notice things like that, but trust me, you do. And then it becomes a mental battle going on in your head because one, one part of you is saying, ignore that. Sorry, but I'm pointing at you, Peter. He was, he was sitting over there. So one, one part of your mind is saying, look, ignore that. Don't let him get to you. But then the other part is keeps flicking an eye over to see if he's cracked a smile. You know, you, you come out with a real zinger of a point and you glance over to see what well, he didn't. Just like this. And when the service was over, he wandered over for a chat. Actually, that's not strictly true. He came over like an Exocet missile <laughs> and got right into me. I hardly, I'd hardly got off the stage. And he said, oh, I've got some issues with a couple of things you said there. And he then proceeded to sort of take issue with almost everything I'd said. And I disagreed with him. But it's not a good look when you've just preached to then be rolling around the floor, punching one of the... <laughs> a member of the congregation, so I tried to head it off at the pass by saying, because look, this is England, for goodness sake. This is happening in England. When, when the service finishes in England, you have a polite cup of tea. This isn't supposed to happen. So I said to him, um, look, I'm ever so sorry, but uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Um, 
and he, he grudgingly nodded and went to walk away. And then he turned back and said, anyway, I don't know why you call it the forgotten commandment. It's the most popular, everybody knows this one. It's not, not the forgotten commandment at all. And you know what? I, I still think it is. I think I'm okay calling it the forgotten commandment because you ask most people in the street, name a couple of commandments they're going to come out with, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery. I don't think anybody's going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and in fact, you could say to that man, do you know what? You're not exactly loving your neighbor right now by attacking the preacher. I, d- I didn't say that to him because that would have been petty. <laughs> Actually, that's not strictly true. I didn't say it to him because it only, that only occurred to me half an hour later in the car <laughs> going home. And I wish I would have said it to him. But perhaps I might be better to say it's the ignored commandment. And Paul was so aware of the importance of this commandment, that he's, he's stressing it to Galatia, and that's why the behavior of these Christians angered him so much. He wasn't interested in who was right and who was wrong. They just shouldn't have been having the dispute. It should have been fixed. And in the couple of minutes we have left, to underline the importance of this, I want to jump into Isaiah. That's a pivot that probably caught you by surprise. Isaiah 58. Now, read it later. In Isaiah 58, first 11 verses. But Isaiah, in chapter 58, he is speaking, again, to God's people. He's not speaking to heathens. He's speaking to God's people. Just like Paul is speaking to God's people. And Isaiah says, day after day, they seek me out. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Day after day, my people seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right. They ask me for just decisions. And they say, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? And then, possibly the funniest verse in the entire Bible, why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Surely the whole point of humbling yourself is that you don't get noticed. So God is saying, through Isaiah... The people are coming in the church and they're, they're, they're fasting, they're worshipping, they're asking me for things. But God is, is saying then, but on the day that you fast or you worship, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other. So God's saying, hang on, you're coming in the church and you're worshipping, and you're asking me for things, but when you've gone out of church, you're fighting with people, you're treating people horribly, you're getting into fights. And if you read Isaiah 58, he says, if that's what you're doing, I reject your worship. I reject it. I don't accept it because of what you're doing outside. He then says, you cannot fast or worship as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So God's saying through Isaiah, you cannot come in and worship and sing hymns and pray and expect me to receive that if you are living your life in a way that goes against what I'm saying. And the way he defines that is how they interact with other people, which is the same thing Paul is saying in 
the church of Corinth and the church in Galatia. Isaiah 58 then continues. He says, is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then, and read this later, read it and absorb it. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke, share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe him. Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. God said, that is worship. That is the worship that I want to see. And if you read those verses and I ask you to say, what is the link in those verses in Isaiah 58 where God says, this is the worship I want, what links them? It's one word, it's compassion. It's I want you to treat people with compassion. That's worship. And so that's what, that's what God is saying to, I believe, the church today. Never more so, perhaps, than the world in which we live today, which is so fractious, so divisive, so full of anger, so full of hate, so full of argument. God is saying, if you are a Christian, you must be a compassionate person. And I don't mean a compassionate person in church. I mean you must love your neighbor. You must love everybody you encounter this coming week, everybody you bump into this week. You've got to treat them how you'd like them to treat you. Would we like somebody to be angry with us? No. Do we want somebody to insult us? No. Do we want somebody to gossip about us? No. Do we want somebody to say bad things about us? No. That's the standard that we as Christians have to adopt out there in the world. And if you continue to read in Isaiah 58, he says, if you do that, if I look and I see you doing that, feeding the homeless, clothing the naked, helping the oppressed, loving people like you love yourself, if I see that, then boy, am I going to bless you. When you call on me, I'm going to answer. You are going to have such blessing if you do that that you won't believe the blessing God will have. So the lesson for us today and for me today, God judges what we do in here based on what we've done out there in the past week. And we need to let that sink in. Because if we treat people with compassion, then when we come to worship, God receives it and he will bless us. If we don't treat people with compassion as Christians, and it, it's not for reward from the people. You, 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 you don't read anywhere that the good Samaritan got paid by the injured man, got his money back for what he paid in the hotel. You don't read he ever got a word of thanks. You don't expect the thanks from the people you help or the people you're kind to. Because some of the people we are required to become kind to next week probably deserve a good clout. 
in human terms, but God's saying, no, you be nice to them because you're a Christian. And when you interact with them, you've got to be kind and compassionate to them. And then don't worry about them throwing it back in your face because guess what? I'll see it and I'll bless you. God judges what we're doing here by what we do out there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your wonderful, wonderful love for us, Lord. We thank you for all of the wonderful blessings that you want to give us. But Lord, we're conscious also of the responsibility that we have, Lord, to be ambassadors for you. And in this difficult and divisive and angry world, you want us as Christians, Lord, to be compassionate and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Help us to do that this week. In your precious and worthy name, amen.